This is the Accidental Safety Pro brought to you by Vivid Learning Systems and the Health and Safety Institute, episode number 42. My name is Jill James, Vivid's Chief Safety Officer, and today I'm joined by Jana Humphreys, who is a Director of Learning Solutions, and John Davis, who is a Senior Instructional Designer and Project Manager. Both Jana and John work at Vivid Learning Systems. Now, if you think Vivid Learning Systems sounds familiar... It is, because I said it just a moment ago. Vivid sponsors this podcast, and I work for Vivid as well, which makes Jana and John and I co-workers. So what does that mean? Does that mean that this episode is going to be one long infomercial or a shameless plug for Vivid? Or is it an indication that I'm running out of podcast guests? (laughs) No, neither of those are true. So let's get that out of the way right away. The reason that I asked Jana and John to be guests is because it occurred to me as we've been working together over the last number of years that they too have become accidental safety pros in their work, yet neither one of them could have seen that coming when they set out on their career paths. Safety has indeed become an ancillary part of their day jobs or their first professions. So if you're not familiar with what Vivid Learning Systems does, um, one of the things that we provide is compliance-based online workplace safety training. And no, that doesn't mean safety videos or video training or other outdated training methods from the 20th century, but we'll let Jenna and John explain online learning and instructional design, among all of the other things that they do, and how their work in this field at Vivid has turned them into one of our fellow accidental safety pros. So Jana and John, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. So Jana, let's, let's start with you. Um, could you share your story? Um, what was your winding career path that led you to safety? Well, I started um, when I was a kid. I wanted to be a teacher. I always did. And, you know, I used to play with my friends. I'm sure I was a real fun kid to play with. And we would play school and I'd make little uh, pretend, you know, math worksheets. And, you know, I was the teacher and just always thought I would be a teacher when I was a kid. And um, when I was in high school, I discovered broadcasting and film and radio television production. And I just switched my passions and and moved into you know that field and decided to get my undergraduate degree in broadcast communications and in the last I think it was the last semester of getting that degree I took a course in educational television Hmm. and I learned about instructional technology and educational technology in that course and I went huh I always wanted to be a teacher, and now I fell in love with broadcasting and film production. I wonder if this might be a way I could merge those two passions that I have and and put them together. (laughs) And so, you know, of course, I was done getting, you know, basically done getting my undergraduate degree. So it's like, well, I guess I have to keep going to school. Mm -hmm. And so I researched programs and um, found a master's in education program that I was interested in. And all of this was taking place in the San Francisco Bay Area. I grew up here, my undergrad graduate was um, at San Francisco State University and my uh, master's that I ended up getting in education um, with an emphasis in in instructional technology is from San Jose State University. Hmm. So I started my career in Silicon Valley, um, was 
fortunate to work um, for most of my career for a consulting company or actually a couple of consulting companies mm-hmm. where we worked with other companies, most of them in Silicon Valley, um, to put together training programs. Mm-hmm. So a lot of what I did in my career was developing a program to help end users use a new system. So they're going to get some new finance system. And so they had to have special training um, for each of those end users. Hmm. And although I enjoyed it and, you know, was able to use some of that broadcasting background and, and develop training programs that, you know, were effective, it, you know, was always about what we called speed to adoption. How fast can these end users learn the system? Mm-hmm. And... I started realizing I just didn't have a lot of passion in that. You know, it's important that people learn a system fast and and not be frustrated. Um, but you know, I was starting to I think get tired of it. Mm-hmm. And one of the customers we had was a medical device company, and part of the program that we developed for this company made me realize that you know this company was developing devices that save lives. Mm-hmm. And I realized I had more passion for that project. And I started thinking, you know, maybe it's time for me to you know, find something new. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe there's a medical device company I, I should work for. Or there's a lot of biotech here in the Bay Area. Maybe, you know, I should look into that. And about that time, an, an old colleague um, reached out to me and said, hey, I'm working for Vivid Learning Systems and I'm going to retire pretty soon. And I think you should have my job. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> yeah. And I'm here in California and she's up there in Washington. And I said, hmm, I, I don't think so. My, my daughter's about to start high school. I, I really don't want to uproot her. And she said, well, I'm not so sure you have to move. Let's, let's talk about this. Mm-hmm. So I started exploring a little bit more and I discovered the content that Vivid Learning Systems developed was safety content. And, you know, I'm a little embarrassed to say this now, but I will tell you my first reaction was, wow, that's really boring. <laughs> <laughs> another another version of the of the financial institutions you're working for, maybe, in your head initially, right? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. oh, I'm going to get really tired of this. And, mm-hmm. and then I was like, really, people need training on, like, how to use a ladder? I, like, I've used <laughs> ladders all my life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, maybe not all my life. Probably not well, Jenna, up until you started working. <laughs> well, I didn't have three points of contact. I know that. See, you are an accidental safety pro. Okay. So there was a moment where I kind of had this, I don't know, epiphany sounds a little too dramatic, but I I just thought, wow, it's, yeah, it is kind of boring. And maybe there's something we could do to make the training not so boring and make it more interesting. And, huh, Mm -hmm. maybe this is a job I should pursue. Mm-hmm. So, you know, fast forward eight years later and um, been with Vivid uh, since then. And, um, you know, we, we're we always striving for, you know, making that content not so boring um, mm-hmm. and making it as engaging and memorable as possible. So anyway, mm-hmm. it's been a, a great path to get here. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, I enjoy my job every single day. And did you find that, you know, you said when you were with a medical device company, you know, you were doing something finally that sparked something in you that it was making a difference. Did you eventually find that in safety too? Yeah, because, you know, the mission that we have at Vivid and the mission that 
we have within the, the team that both John and I are a part of is to make memorable content. But we know the end goal is to help save lives in high-risk work environments. And we really, I mean, I believe that we're making a difference in doing mm-hmm. that with the mm-hmm. content that we make. Awesome. Thank you for sharing your story. So, John, what about you? What's what's your story? How did How did you accidentally get into this field? <laughs> well, I started out with... Um, a passion for creating videos back before I uh, went into college. I knew I wanted to do something with video production. Mm-hmm. I liked telling stories on camera. I liked uh, the elements of humor or suspense, uh, everything that, that was possible. And so I thought I would uh, go into that. Well, I, I got into uh, broadcast journalism. In fact, I, I see a lot of uh, kind of uncanny similarities between uh, Jana and myself and our career paths because I started in uh, broadcast journalism and uh, at the university you would be part of a, a team that would develop stories, produce stories. We had a, a little segment that we would run locally uh, where you'd be the, the news anchor that you would also edit the story, produce the story, write the script, uh, contact who you're going to interview. You were kind of a, you know, a very small team with with one or two people, and mm-hmm. as I you know kind of went through that program, I felt like uh, maybe I could shift a little bit. I didn't really have as much uh, passion for doing news journalism, although it is it's not a dull moment. But I, I thought if we could get into uh, maybe more of the educational side and and not just uh, information, mm-hmm. you know, reporting facts, and and so I found out about this program at, at my university uh, in instructional technology to get a master's degree. And so um, while I was there, I had a, a chance to work in what was then called distance ed, where uh, I had a, a program that was part-time job and we would produce these uh, videos for um, people that were remote from the university. And you would basically produce a videotape and send it to them in the mail and they would watch it and they mm-hmm. would then have a, a weekly session with the professor where they could ask questions. And, and so that's how I, um, while I was in the program, I, I had that job. And I, I knew that, you know, the evolution of technology was going to keep going. And so I figured that with the background in instructional technology, the tools and the, and the technology continued to evolve. You know, they would just go continue to go hand in hand. And so yeah. I had a uh, one of the former graduates of the program, one of the alumni, uh, told me about the position here at Vivid. And so I thought, well, that sounds like a uh, Washington. Where's Washington? So I, I thought, Where were you at the time? Oh, this was in the Intermountain West in Utah. Okay. So, um, you know, the alumni would try to keep people informed about where there were opportunities. And it was just for uh, an internship. Mm-hmm. So I started um, and I did what instructional designers did. And, you know, I had to meet certain criteria, but uh, that was really my introduction here at Vivid was to start as an intern. Mm-hmm. And how many years, how many years ago was that, John? Well, that's been quite a while. <laughs> um, I, I don't think I can even remember. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for that, John, as the senior member of this podcast. <laughs> 
<laughs> and that and that's that's not anything to do with age. So you've uh, you know the people who are listening right now are thinking, gosh, where are all these people? So Jana mentioned she was in the Bay Area, and um, and John, you are at um, one of our offices in Washington. And as you all can hear from my Midwest accent, I'm smack dab in the middle of the country in the in the Midwest, and yet we're all coworkers. So um, curious. You both found the field of instructional design, but in and and in similar ways. I'm wondering if for our audience who maybe hasn't heard the term instructional design before, if maybe you can share what that is or if there's some basic principles of how you do what it is that you do. Sure. Um there are, you know, several very common principles um, for instructional design, and you know, the the ones that come to mind, top of mind. Um, you know, one is mainly just thinking about what your outcomes are going to be, and you know, I think of, uh, you know, to borrow a phrase from Stephen Covey, I just use the phrase "begin with the end in mind" mm-hmm. of what you want people to be able to do or how you want them to behave. Mm-hmm. And with training, um, and especially with safety training, there's different layers of how you, you know, analyze that and figure out what, you know, what you want to have happen. So with safety training, there's a behavioral outcome that you want, and that's that you want them to get home safely every mm-hmm. single day. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, they need to perform in a certain way. So you start thinking about performance objectives. And you want them to perform by working safely and not injuring themselves. And so then you go down another level and you're like, well, so how are we going to make that happen? Well, they need to know things and they need to remember things that they're taught and they need to comprehend the risks. And um, those become the learning objectives. And so if we roll that all up, we might teach someone about the importance of machine guards Mm -hmm. and hope that we teach it in a way that's memorable. And then from a performance perspective, when they're on the job, they remember, oh, I better put that guard on. And from a behavior perspective, it's because they, you know, they performed safely and um, they got home safely at the end of that day. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Really the, really the science of, of uh, that behavior. Exactly that you're trying to do. Yeah, great. Thank you. What else, Jenna? Well, you're also trying to figure out how you're going to measure that. So if we want these outcomes, how are we going to prove that, you know, they can do those things? And mm. depending on what layer you're at or what type of training you're developing, um, this could be practice exercises that um, are in a, you know, an e-learning program, or if it's in a classroom program, it could be um, questions and answers, or even a live, you know, demonstration that you can do something that you've been taught to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, that so, knowledge yeah. transfer piece. Yeah. Right. Okay. And, you know, one that I think is, you know, always top of mind and probably, you know, where a lot of my passion comes from is having a, what you call a student-centered approach always keeping the student top of mind, um, making content um, that grabs their attention, that's relevant to them, that they can relate to. Um, They've got some context. It's not just a fact. There's some context to how this relates to their job. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that they're able to have some control of their learning, that they, um, you know, can explore content, have a moment to digest content. Um, All of that has to do with having a student-centered approach. 
Yeah, go ahead. Were you finishing a thought? I was going to say that, you know, all these systems, all of these um, thoughts come um, together in um, what we call a systematic approach. Almost all instructional design is going to follow some sort of systematic step-by-step process uh, for how you're going to get through, you know, determining what those objectives are. And they've morphed and changed over the decades and and some of the labels have changed. um, But, you know, the end goal is that you're always trying to make a program that will change behaviors and um, in the most exciting and engaging way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you just mentioned something interesting. You said um, decades, like decades people have been doing instructional design and, and maybe, you know, before meeting you both, I didn't really know what an instructional designer was. Um, and you've just mentioned that this is not necessarily a new field. Um, what does that mean? Decades, like where else would have people seen instructional designers or what is that? How long has it been around? <laughs> well, it actually goes back to um, military um, from World War II. Oh, there wow. were so many military personnel that needed to be trained and, and they needed to prove that they were ready to go out. And um, so they developed a systematic way to do training. And when the military training was so successful, psychologists sort of paid attention and said, hmm, I think there's you know a way that we can systematically design um, training so that we you know ensure that learning occurs Mm -hmm. and uh, so a bunch of learning theorists came out of that um, and uh, I think that's when programs started coming together in universities Um, you know John was joking about the many years ago but you know the the, these programs you know the one I went to was in the early you know I graduated in the early 90s and so Mm -hmm. it's it's been around you know Mm -hmm. getting the programs Mm -hmm. yeah Uh, yeah interesting yeah, I'm I'm interested um to hear feedback from um listeners if any safety pros out there also are instructional designers if that was um maybe something else they had in their background cuz so many safety professionals do training and I'm wondering if as people are listening they're thinking, "Oh, I do that one thing or I do this thing or I I didn't know that I was incorporating some of that stuff or oh crap. <laughs> maybe I maybe I needed to." Um so earlier you had mentioned um that you use a systematic approach. So how do you how do you both go about designing a course? Like what are the steps you take? And um John, maybe this is this is one that you'd like to answer. Sure. So you have a basis for why you are creating this training, this outcome that you are trying to achieve and in a lot of our um, cases, we have a regulatory agency that is a making a requirement of, of people in the in the whatever the industry might be, general industry or whatever that might be. You have to do something. You have to train workers. They have to work in a safe environment. And so, mm-hmm. there's a, a number of you know regulatory requirements that are produced to. Uh, with the goal of keeping people safe, but just mm-hmm. publishing, you know, a, a document does not automatically achieve that outcome. So we, we feel like we can produce this training that is uh, makes it a lot more uh, relatable. And so you have okay, here's our requirement. It might be a, a, a regulatory standard or requirement. Mm-hmm. And so now we're going to try to dive a little deeper and determine what is it really relevant for 
our audience. Mm -hmm. And so it might only be um, parts of that. It might be all of it. That's really where you do some analysis at the beginning. And then you're going to uh, create some objectives in the instructional design field or learning design. You need to be able to articulate what it is you're actually trying to accomplish. And if, mm -hmm. if it's too fuzzy, then your design is going to suffer as a result. Or if it's too narrow, it's you, you might be missing part of the picture. So that's mm -hmm. really important at the beginning that you really define what it is you're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. Your learners may not even realize that's what you're doing, but uh, as instructional designers, that's you, you need to have something you can measure against. Mm -hmm. And so that's uh, what we call these learning objectives. You might have a, um, a terminal, what was called a terminal objective or an instructional goal that says, this is our big goal right here. At the end of this training, you can do these things. And then okay. you have smaller uh, objectives, more uh, specific that are sometimes called enabling objectives that are along the way, you're going to do these things that will lead to this outcome at the end. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So once you've got those defined, mm -hmm. um, you're on a really good start and then you need to decide, okay, how are we going to present or design um, the, the content into something that really flows, that's logical, that that is going to make sense. Again, like Jenna was saying, we want to put ourselves in the shoes of our learners where they, if this is something I'm just learning about as as an instructional designer, does this make sense to me? Am I, do I have holes in, in what I'm trying to communicate? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times you'll start with, in the safety world, you know, can you recognize the hazards of whatever the particular uh, topic is and mm -hmm. and how do you respond how do you protect what are the controls in place I mean mm -hmm. there's a lot of you know similarities in the process but not everyone is is identical of course you it's not just gonna be cookie cutter every time mm -hmm. and another technique that we have found a lot of um, power in and, and to really make our training effective is the use of storytelling mm -hmm. and so we want to have uh, a lot of scenarios where you have an environment that our learners really can relate to. And people pay good money to go to movies and to be entertained. Mm -hmm. And they follow these stories and, and they want to know what happens. And so that's just inherent with storytelling. And so when we can intertwine those into training, you start with a, um, a beginning, what you mm -hmm. call a, what we call a hook or a grabber where people are like, oh, I wanna know what's ha gonna happen. Is he going to, spill that chemical or, you know, is she going to, you know, totally forget to put on gloves, whatever it might be to try to really pull people in. Mm -hmm. And then they hopefully are going to see how doing something or not doing something is going to impact the characters in this story. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. So you were talking about um, objectives kind of in the beginning, the, you know, the terminal objective or the main goal and then the enabling ones. So if I'm, if I tell me, you tell me if I'm getting this right. So would like an, an, a terminal objective, could it be that we want people to know how to wear the respirator properly? Like the goal is, you know, you know how to put it on properly and along the way, it would be like you have to have the right fit and you have to do these fit tests and you have to adjust it in this manner. Would those be kind of enabling objectives along the way to the end goal? Would that be an example? Yeah, that could be a good example. Where If you're looking at respirator use, you would have, um, again, depending on, you know, is this a two-week 
course? Is this a 20-minute course? Yeah. Are you going to be able to have, um, you know, your instructional goal to, at the end? Maybe it's just how to, you know, properly wear or how to um, don it. Yeah. You know, if, if you're going to be spending the entire course on just how to don a mask, yeah. then that that would be your uh, terminal objective. And then your the enabling would be even smaller about, you know, facial hair or, you know, how oh, you... Oh, sure. Um, yeah, you can you can dive as deep yeah. as uh, as you need to, and that's really where your your analysis will tell you that you know to to succeed to measure this pro- this outcome properly, they have to you know, learners have to you know, and that's really where you're working with you know a, a subject matter expert, which we'll get into here shortly to define what is it that we're trying to accomplish here. Right. If, if you're going to be an airline pilot, then 20 minutes will not be adequate, you know, to <laughs> right. you know, learn your skill. But mm-hmm. if you've already had a lot of experience and this is just refresher training, then maybe you can spend a shorter amount of time on whatever mm-hmm. that topic might be. Mm-hmm. Or if you've never donned a respirator before, well, maybe you need a little more time right. to learn all the elements. you got to know what a cartridge is. You need to know you know, the various aspects just to be introduced to them. Right, right. So, I mean, this is a, this is comprehensive. And I'm guessing that it's not just one instructional designer, just one member of a team that does all of this. So, John, can you explain, like, who makes up a team to be able to produce a course? I, you, you mentioned the word subject matter expert a little bit ago, but who, who would be on a team? Sure. We have the uh, instructional design project manager, which is, that's my title. Mm-hmm. And then you have a instructional designer. You have a subject matter expert, which is the acronym SME, mm-hmm. uh, or sometimes they're called SMEs. Mm-hmm. And then we have on our development team a producer. Mm-hmm. And so we have various disciplines. So within you know, our development team at Vivid, you know, the instructional design project manager, instructional designer uh, and then a producer which is really a, uh, a media specialist mm-hmm. the titles can vary from you know location or, or company but they're really the wizards that are, are good with graphics and audio and animation mm-hmm. and all this team together uh, once we've done this analysis we are creating the first um, milestone in our process, which is called a blueprint. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just one person on the team saying, this is what I think we should do. It's really a, a collaborative approach. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the subject matter experts are very important in that approach. Hmm. Fascinating. So um, Jenna, John, both you and John have mentioned instructional design project managers and instructional designers. Uh, how do you go about finding an instructional designer or what sorts of industries are people going to find people like you and John in and like, what are their backgrounds? Well, instructional designers are you know pretty much in every field. Um, I think what it is is that our titles aren't necessarily consistent. And okay. so what one organization may call it, you know, a different, you know, organization might call it something different. Um, we hear the words instructional design, a lot of times learning design, training. Um, I've heard people refer to as performance consultants when they're instructional designers, hmm. educational consultants, educational technology. John mentioned multimedia before, so you can put that word in front of, you know, specialists yeah. or designers. 
um, learning sciences sometimes is used. Hmm. So, you know, it's a pretty large community. Um, there's lots of LinkedIn groups. There's lots of organizations that, you know, focus in training and development um, with, you know, job boards and, you know, ways to find instructional designers if, if you know, they're not, you know, readily available um, but most you know I you know maybe not some of the smaller companies are gonna have them but most of the larger companies are going to have someone that's responsible and has been um, trained in how to develop um, instruction yeah interesting you know and that's a good tip for our listeners as well especially if you're working like Jana just said in a larger organization and you heard some of those job titles and you're thinking hey we've got somebody with that job title here I didn't know that that's what they did or what their background is and you know maybe this is someone I'd want to get to know that could help me with my job um, as a safety professional so thank you for sharing that so um, John after you've you know you've got these objectives and you know you can you know what your topic is um, how do you go about writing a course then what does what's involved in that sure so once we have you know got the Analysis has been completed, and we have we know what we're trying to accomplish, and we've created this initial document called the blueprint that really is setting uh, our outline for what we're going to, how we're going to approach things, how we're going to sequence the content, and from there we go into what we call a storyboard, hmm. and so um, that's could mean different things to different uh, organizations. But in here at Vivid, that's really a document that in, contains everything that will be a part of the course. Mm-hmm. That's a narration script. That's going to be the screen text that will appear. It's a description of visuals. It's a uh, description of interactions and, and practice activities. It's the test, you know, or the assessment, the post-assessment. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of those elements are included in the document. <laughs> and then we go ahead. No, I, that I just—it's so many details. I find this fascinating. Please continue. Right. So we have. Uh, so all these elements are going to come together, and then it needs to. Um, we have reviews. We have um, people that are going to be checking that yes, this is accurate. We have one of those, as I've mentioned, is the subject matter expert. They are going to be not just reading text. You know, they're going to be, you know, seeing some visuals and they they see descript- descriptions of how things are going to flow and how they're going to work. Mm-hmm. And then we have um, technical reviews uh, to make sure that, you know, everything is not only accurate, but also there's, you know, no typos, uh, misspellings. You know, it's ready to be published at the end. Right, right. So is there, a, is there an average amount of time it takes to produce a, a course, or does that completely depend on, you know, the length of the course and the details in it and some of those other things that you talked about? Yes, it is uh, heavily dependent. I mean, you can come up with some averages um, yeah. with the runtime of a course. Sure. It really matters on, you know, is this going to be um, very media-rich? Is it going to be, you know, heavily immersive? Is this going to be... Um, what we call page turners, which are not very exciting and don't have a lot of visual appeal. Mm-hmm. So that is going to really depend, uh, you know, the less uh, visual appeal you have, uh, the less time has been put into it. Those are not going to take as long to produce. Right. They won't be as memorable either. Yeah, and makes sense. <laughs> they, they're generally not going to be 
uh, as effective for the end user. Yeah. Yeah. I always laugh that in e-learning or in, you know, online training, we don't want page turners. Right. But when you're reading a book, you want a page turner, page right? Turner. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Right. And different instructional design in, 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 a, in a book version, right, Dana? That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. 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 If you're just clicking, you're not, you're not getting engaged. Right. So that's, that's not what we're going for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm, interesting. So now you both mentioned your formal education in instructional design and education, but how did you learn that safety piece? Like, how did that work for you both? Um, John, maybe maybe you start. Sure. So when I started with the company, and it was immediately, this is some of the projects that we have going on right now with, uh, I believe, it was teaching uh, employees about the various radiological hazards that they might encounter at a facility. Hmm. And they were f- facility specific from what I recall. And so like, okay, I need to kind of get into this as an instructional designer. Any topic that you're taking on, you really start to internalize it because you are living and breathing this topic for you know, however long yeah. the project might go. Yeah, you mm-hmm. have to know it in order mm-hmm. to teach it. That's a pretty... Uh, a fair assumption I think you can make of, of any teacher in any medium. Mm-hmm. It, you're exposed, I think, if you don't know what you're talking about pretty fast. Mm-hmm. So you have to get into the regulations. You have to try to get some practical experience from talking with others that have been in that environment, like our mm-hmm. subject matter experts. Mm-hmm. So I can recall um, a time when learning about um, bloodborne pathogens, I believe it was, and reading through it and there was... Uh, OSHA had a, a number that you could call, and I'm sure this is still the case, if you wanted to ask questions. Uh-huh. And so I'm not an employer. I'm an instructional designer hoping uh-huh. to have some questions answered so I can be accurate. Um, yeah. That was really kind of the beginning where you know we're forging these partnerships with uh, subject matter experts. So now I don't call OSHA. Uh, we work with our <laughs> subject matter experts because they already know that. But did it did it work when you called OSHA? Well, um, the person on the other end of the line was, was very polite, but he must have asked, you know, are you just starting this job? Is this your first day on the job? Because <laughs> I don't feel like you really have a handle on this yet. Like, well, I don't. That's why I'm calling you. So, And yes, I am an intern. Thank you for asking. <laughs> That's awesome. But they did take your call. <laughs> they did take the call. They did answer the question, but he could not restrain his commentary. <laughs> So, so there you heard it from someone who's tried. OSHA is helpful, but apparently some of it comes with a little color commentary. <laughs> That's great. Jenna, how about you? How did you, how did you learn safety? Well, since John had already navigated OSHA by the time I got here. You knew you weren't going to do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have to say, you know, he paved a lot of the, you know, the way for me and, um, you know, there when I got here, we already had a library of courses. Um, you know, we wanted to improve upon them, but we had a library, and so I was able to learn a lot from going through our courses. And then um, once I, you know, realized, oh, there's this, you know, OSHA.gov, and I started exploring the regulations and understanding. Oh, that's why we train that. I understand. So I started making that connection. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember the day you you uh, did a presentation for the company, and you pulled out your your big 1910 book, and it had all these post-it flags on it, and you showed. <laughs> it to us on screen in the 1926 book next to it I went oh, I wish she's you know someone had helped me make that connection a few years ago because it was mm-hmm. just one of those I just didn't quite 
it didn't click at yeah. first and I understood it at some point before you did that but it trust was... me it takes a while for it to click with many of us <laughs> you're not alone <laughs> and you know it's probably one you know not that John didn't tell me this it's probably just he probably did it just didn't click you know right. and um, so I always tease it was through osmosis but you know it's mm-hmm. it's uh, you know a lot of going through what we had in place and then you know John mentioned our subject matter experts they're amazing and just like you talk about you, you, you we get you when we tell you one thing and you've got stories to tell of some incidents some very sad story oftentimes and um our subject matter experts have them as well and Mm. so you learn a lot just talking them it's fascinating sometimes you know we just get into these early conversations about we're going to develop a course we're trying to look for a story we need some examples we need some relevance and you know it's sometimes hard to you know stop them we don't need that many (laughs) those Uh are some really great stories um but you learn a lot just talking to them right right so how you know do SMEs or subject matter experts, do they need training to help you develop an online safety training course? Or what makes a good subject matter expert? If any of the safety professionals who are listening right now are thinking, hey, this sounds like something I'd like to do. You know, what What makes a good one? And I probably should disclose, I am not an SME for our company. Um, we all work together, but um, I have, I have other... Um, other responsibilities within our company. And so you guys have your own bevy of SMEs. What, what makes a good one? Well, I think, you know, one of the key is that they're still working in the field. And Mm. so, you know, if they were a subject matter expert that we had here on staff, that would be, you know, they would be a valuable person to have, but they're not daily getting new stories and new experiences and things to tell us to help us make our content relevant. So I think that's a, a fantastic component of our subject matter experts that they actually, you know, are still out in the field. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, but in terms of training, um, you know, if, if we don't explain what we're looking for, you know, we're not going to get what we're looking for. And, um, you know, John mentioned it's more than them looking at the words that we're going to have on the screen or the words that the narrator is going to speak. Um, They're helping us at story development to make sure that the, you know, what we're going to have in the story makes sense. It's relevant. The piece of equipment we're considering having in the scene makes sense. We've got the guard in the right place. You know, we'll give them little images before we start animating things to make sure that, you know, the way we have the scene set up and staged is accurate. Mm-hmm. And so when you first start working with a subject matter expert, they are, they tend to be more focused on the words and the narration and, and, you know, it's, it takes a little training to say, no, no, I need you to really carefully look at that image. And, you know, I remember, you know, one of our, um, you know, one of the courses when I was pretty early on here and, you know, we thought it was perfect and we, you know, heard soon after putting it out there that our trucks didn't have um, the chocks on the truck initiative. And it was like one of those things like, wow, we thought we thought of everything. We got the goggles, we got the vest, we got everything perfect. We were focused on the character, I guess, more mm-hmm. than the equipment. And so it's just, you know, it's a learning experience it was for us as well. We need to make sure that's part of the checklist. You've looked at every piece of equipment. Everything is accurate. Every PPE element is correct and, you know, wearing, you know, it the right way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even it could be some drawn character, a 3D or a 2D character, but we're trying to make sure it's it's as accurate as it possibly can be. So it takes, you know, some training back and forth of 
us understanding the words they're telling us and um, them trusting us that you know we're going to present the content in a way that students can digest it so we sort of you know we bow to their expertise and then they bow to our instructional design expertise and it makes a really wonderful partnership Hmm, wonderful so what about the safety professionals who are listening and are thinking they want to develop their own online training is is that something they can do yeah, certainly. Um, there's a lot of tools that are out there for developing online learning. Um, you know, I'd really suggest you stay away from just like the slideshow presenter kind of programs that are out there because the page we were talking, turners. Yeah, we were talking <laughs> yeah. about those before. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are some e-learning software programs that are out there um, that some of them are pretty easy to use. Um, the one you know caution I have with them is that there is an expectation that there's some thought, some analysis, some instructional design going on behind the scenes and that you know a little bit about how to uh, group content in a, in a way that will make sense. Um, you know, I always make a joke that I just because I have Microsoft Word on my computer doesn't make me a novelist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, you mm-hmm. know, I've seen some really good programs done by subject matter experts. I have. I've also seen some really bad ones. Right. And some people have the skills to do it and some people don't. So I say definitely try it. Try it. Mm -hmm. And if you happen to have an instructional designer in your workplace, uh, work with them. Yeah. Yeah. So you've talked about um, off-the-shelf course development software and you've used the term online learning. I imagine that things have changed quite a bit over the courses of, of both of your careers because when you when you started, neither one of you, online learning probably wasn't even in the vernacular. And so I'm wondering, um, could maybe, John, could you take us on a little a little tour of what's what training technology has been like, maybe a little bit of a timeline journey for us? Sure. It is really intriguing to see how some technologies have been around a long time. They have just changed and how they are presented. The The concept is still the same. And yeah. what I'm thinking of is uh, projectors. So you have uh, from the 1950s, 1960s, you have a projector that is you know projecting this image on the screen with an instructor mm-hmm. who's you know, you know, t- walking through the whatever is being uh, taught at the moment and so yeah. that's been around for quite some time and you know that was with the the small slides and and the, the beep in between that's uh, evolved quite a bit since back then but going back through the the timeline um, we had you know a lot of paper um, that's been reduced quite a bit in the 1970s and and by the way uh, OSHA uh, came to be in 1970. Mm-hmm. And then as we, the march continued, we had in the early 1980s the advent of VHS. And mm. so before you might have had a film and and actual you know slides, now you've got a VHS tape you can pop in and a, a lot more portable. And so that technology was around uh, for you know throughout the 1980s and this you saw in 1983, the mid-80s, really personal computers coming into the market, being adapted by businesses in the late 1980s and, and into the 1990s. And one big event, uh, this is not a, necessarily a plug for Microsoft, but PowerPoint mm. debuted in 1990. And so okay. that instantly made 
a lot of presenters and is still widely used today. 1994 was uh, when CD-ROMs really became available. Uh, they were used as uh, training mediums. Uh, Vivid had its first uh, course uh, or, or suite of courses on CD-ROM. Mm -hmm. And so <laughs> that really kind of uh, gave rise to uh, or were replaced by DVDs uh, as a medium, but still a disc that has to go into a computer tray or into a if you're showing uh, a video on a large screen, mm -hmm. a DVD player. Mm -hmm. You also have um, really s starting to see um, computerized records from the you know mid-90s into the early 2000s. The acronym LMS, Learning Management System, that did not used to be a thing prior to, uh, you know, about around 2000. Yeah. We saw something called Course Management System. And then in the early 2000s, getting a little bit closer to uh, you know, this current century, we now had the really the, the rise of, of online learning, e-learning, uh, several terms that were coined to what do we call this thing that is now on the internet and it's not just cat videos and it's not just, you know, movie reviews. It is actually uh, educational, something that can be tracked. Mm -hmm. And so you, you see in the late uh, 2000s, uh, 2008, 2009, where you, the rise of social media and people can post about what they're learning or they can look at smaller pieces of instruction. They can share what they're learning. Uh, you see now cloud-based uh, software, cloud-based LMS. And then you see smartphones and mobile devices really uh, mm -hmm. multiplying. And so if you can imagine life without your smartphone, that mm -hmm. was prior to about 2005 or 2010. And now that really have just become just synonymous with online learning. People are yeah. going to want to know, can I take this on my tablet? Mm -hmm. Can I take this on my phone? And so we're seeing in, in the last five or six years where we're migrating to um, mobile devices more and more. And mm -hmm. really there's a few trends I could mention too while I'm, I'm on the subject is sure. uh, you've got the latest trends are really gravitating toward um, Exciting technology like virtual reality, mm -hmm. augmented reality, mm -hmm. uh, VR and AR are their acronyms. Mm -hmm. We see their use uh, because you can put someone in an environment by just putting something over their eyes. And now all of a sudden they think they're in you know, the top of a building or they're driving a vehicle or you know, they're in this other environment. And it's, it's becoming uh, more and more widespread and really is very exciting to see mm -hmm. uh, how companies can adapt that. Right, right. And so people who are listening, are I'm, I'd invite you to think about what decade is your company in right now with training? <laughs> you know, I mean, sometimes the answer might be 1990 or 95 or <laughs> some of the places that John has been talking about. And thanks for sharing, you know, kind of what the trends are with uh, virtual reality and augmented reality as well. I know um, just a week ago, Jana and I had an opportunity to experience um, virtual reality and um be able to trial some training and see what that was like and and uh, you know as we're as we're keeping our finger on the pulse of of trends and moving ahead that was really interesting too um, so John regardless of these different methods for training and what's evolved over over the decades safety professionals still have to combat that question from their employees 
ah, why do we have to do this again? Not this again, safety again. And all of those, all of those things that all of us safety professionals get tired of hearing. So how does, how does your work combat that, um, for safety professionals? How does it help get around that frustration? Yeah. Right. I think that the key is to engage the learners and help them see how this is important, how it's meaningful, how it really can make a difference. I think the attitude is, you know, it's when you look at the science of instructional design, that is, you know, it's if you don't have their buy-in at the beginning, it's very touch very excuse me, it's very tough if you don't have their buy-in to to reach them. They're not going to internalize anything. They're not going to to say, yeah, that is important to me because they've they've already tuned you out. And mm-hmm. that's true of classroom instruction. You know, that's true of talking to a family member. You know, if it's like mm-hmm. this, this is important. Mm-hmm. I, I need to listen up. And mm-hmm. so that's how you try to use creativity. You try to really kind of, um, in a creative way, remind them if they already know it. And that's another thing. They, I know this. Yeah. I, I don't, I can't possibly learn anything. Well, may, there could be something they actually did not know that they, they thought they knew, or maybe mm-hmm. it's approached from a different angle. Mm-hmm. Um, the medium, I think, is important, and but really good design is important. You're, the technology can, is very helpful. You know, it's very important, but really good design. They have to go together to really get somebody involved right at the beginning. Right, right. Interesting, and, and keep it fresh. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. If you if you see the same thing, even if it's really good after, you know, time and after you've seen it a number of times, you, like, well, okay, wait a minute, I I have seen this before. Right. And keeping it fresh. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. So, question for each of you: When you go about your daily normal home lives. Um, does safety jump out at you <laughs> like like the rest of us uh, safety professionals now? Is it infiltrated how you live your lives and interact with your families? <laughs> Most definitely. <Uh-oh>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of hard not to. I mean, I think um, my husband used to be a chef, and I always think about it when we go out to dinner, it's really hard for him to turn it off. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, honey, could you just enjoy the dinner? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and and I do the same thing to him. So, yeah, I'm, we're driving around and I might see a construction site and I'm looking at the sign to see what the PPE requirements are. Or um, I saw some people up on a scissor lift at the airport one day and I was kind of checking to see if it looked like they were doing it right. I don't mm-hmm. pretend to know I know all of the things that they're supposed to do, but I'm like checking to make sure. So, yeah, it's pretty hard to turn it off. <laughs> yeah. And your eyes are your eyes are just observing people's work too, in yeah, in what's going on around you. Yeah, John, what about what about you? Oh yes, uh, you know I feel like we've succeeded when I remember something, whether I'm you know thinking about it per se or not. And one of the videos we in our bloodborne pathogens training was uh, showing a person pushing down this garbage into a container and a needle was in there and they get a needle stick mm-hmm. and that's just so so memorable and i just like i cannot ever push garbage down with my hand 
I, mm-hmm. I, I just can't. I won't. And so I thought, hey, we succeeded, at least for me, mm-hmm. that we don't want anyone to do that. And so we're trying, you know, our objective was to avoid needle sticks. And, you know, another objective, know how their tr- bloodborne pathogens are transmitted. Well, yeah. here in one short uh, clip, it's memorable. And so I cannot push my hand into a garbage can because I don't want a needle stick, even if there's no chance of a needle being in there. I also, when I'm driving, I'll, there's some construction and I'm asking myself, are those cones properly placed apart? Is there sign up soon enough so you can slow down? <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. That's just one of countless examples. <laughs> right, right, right. And you've done some food safety courses as well, right? Yes, right. I, I found myself thinking about how long that particular food has been above 41 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> And how long that food has been in the refrigerator because there are requirements that mandate how long, you know, because you don't want a foodborne illness. So, yeah, I've got a lot of uh, modules I've developed that are still (laughs) stuck in your head. (laughs) (laughs) They were memorable. (laughs) Again, yeah, I feel like, hey, I've succeeded. I'm going to put on these safety Uh glasses. I'm not going to take a shortcut here. I'm going to wear these earmuffs. I'm going to have three points of contact on this ladder. Yeah, it's... Mm-hmm. It has a lot of it has stuck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, welcome to the family of safety <laughs> to both of you. <laughs> We're happy to have you here and with us. <laughs> welcome to the inside of most of our heads. <laughs> really appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, and thank you both so much for sharing the science of your work. And I suspect that um, many of the people listening today are thinking, gosh, if I could only have one of these two with me the next time I try to deliver some training, how much easier this might be. So really, really appreciate you sharing your stories and uh, thank you for what you do. Thank Thank you you. for having us. We appreciate it. Mm And thank you for spending your time listening today. And more importantly, thank you for your contribution, making sure your workers, including your temporary workers, make it home safe every day. If you'd like to join the conversation about this episode or any of our previous episodes, follow our page and join the Accidental Safety Pro community group on Facebook. If you aren't subscribed and you want to hear past or future episodes, you can subscribe in iTunes, the Apple Podcast app, or any podcast player that you'd like. You can also find all of our episodes at vividlearningsystems.com slash podcast. We would love it if you could leave a rating and review us on iTunes. It really helps us connect the show with more and more safety professionals like you and I. And if you have a suggestion for a guest, including if it's yourself, please contact me at social at vividlearningsystems.com. Special thanks to Will Moss, our podcast producer. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.